I hope that God gave you time to find Hosea chapter 6. It's one of the things I love about um, uh, just working through books of the Bible is we end up in places we frequently uh, wouldn't end up left to ourselves. Hosea chapter 6, uh, we will read um, uh, verses 1 through 11, the whole uh, chapter. Let's give your attention to the reading of God's word. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that we may that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us on the third day. He will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and my judgments. My judgment goes forth as the light for I steadfast. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Thus far, God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, uh, our great God and King, uh, that you would open your word to us. Grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to believe and embrace. Uh, Grant us your spirit uh, that lives might be changed. Uh, And we ask all of this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Have um, Have you ever surprised your valentine? Now, hold on. I don't mean like surprised your valentine with, oh, they had no idea I was going to give them a box of chocolates. Right. Oh, I had they had no idea I was going to bring them flowers. Oh, they had no idea I was going to take them to dinner. I mean, have you ever surprised your Valentine as in they had no idea they were your Valentine? I mean, have you ever sort of shown up, knocked on the door? I've got flowers for you. Would you be my Valentine? And they go, who are you like? Where is this coming from? Like it just sounds completely out of left field. You know, your words say be mine. And but the reality is they're caught. And the looks on your faces sort of prove the point. Right. That's just not likely to happen. Okay, it, it, it could. You could create a couple of scenarios where it might. But the reason it's not likely to happen is because long before anybody shows up at your doorstep to say, be my Valentine. There's a long history of actions that kind of go along with that. In other words, their words and their actions match what they're saying and what they're doing, what they what they say out loud and how they live, how they sort of 
conducting their lives. Those things go together. And so when they show up, knock on the door with flowers, you go, well, duh, of course. You want me to be your valentine. It's been obvious all along. I mean, if if your words say be mine, but your actions sort of say I have no idea who you are, that would catch somebody off guard. Well, in a lot of ways, that's where we are in Hosea 6. Hosea 6 reminds us really that that repentance ultimately is more than words. If we can steal from that phenomenal 80s and 90s band extreme. (laughs) It's not enough simply to say saying is one thing, but that our actions should sort of follow behind those words and and the two things should fit. They should go together. It should the actions that that follow the words, the words that follow the actions should all say the same thing. And so Hosea six really is just like that, recognizing that um, our repentance should be more than words. First, I want you to notice that repentance is responding to God's rebuke. We're in Hosea 6. And thus far, there has been a lot of threat and warning and danger and and promise punishment and pending, impending doom. Maybe both work. I don't know. Whichever. Doom's coming. Um, and, and Assyria is going to come and defeat Israel and, and carry you off and you're going to cease to exist. You're going to be no more. That's been the pattern. I mean, for five chapters, there's, there's been constant warning. Israel is, is guilty of spiritual adultery. Israel is, is, of, is guilty and for generations, for ages of worshiping Baal rather than Yahweh, of, of serving idols, of serving false gods rather than the one true God, the one who brought them out of slavery, bondage in Egypt and delivered them into the promised land. And, and we've, we've watched as Hosea's marriage to Gomer served as an illustration of Israel's relationship to God. Just as Gomer has been chasing after other men, so too Israel has committed adultery, spiritually speaking. And we've seen that even Hosea's children um, kind of bear warning, promise, threat, danger to Israel that just as just as he has a child named not my people, so Israel, you really are not my people. Just as he has a child named no mercy, Israel, I'm I'm not going to show you any more mercy. There's been five chapters of this, of of how. God has brought warning and threat and 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 promise of doom and destruction to Israel. He's been reminding them of their guilt. You know, it's that it's that sort of. How do you respond when you, you know, get caught? Right. Your parents discover that you haven't done the things they told you to do. Right. Kids like, oh, no, my parents have discovered I, I didn't do what what mom told me to do, what dad told me to do. I, I'm I'm guilty and I've been caught. 
a coworker, uh, your spouse. I mean, somebody catches you and, and calls you out on something. Like, what's your response? Do you give the, the, do you give the Fonz response? You know, you remember the Fonz and happy days? I'm, I'm, he couldn't say, I'm sorry. He never said it. He could, I'm, he couldn't get the words out. Well, in, in many ways, that's kind of how Israel has been now for five chapters, unwilling to admit their guilt, unwilling to confess their sin. And, and in chapter four, the children, the name of the children sort of call them uh, to repentance. Uh, chapter five, last week, God promises judgment. That's been the pattern. And it's only now that we get verses one through three words of repentance. Come, let's return. Let's go back to God. Let's, let's return to Yahweh. Do I, do I need to remind you? Here's, here's your little English Bible. Every so often, I've got to throw this back in there, right? When you're reading your English Bible and you see Lord written in all capital letters, that is the English Bible translator's way of telling you that in Hebrew, it's God's covenant name. It's that Yahweh name, that that name given to Israel, particularly to, to Moses back in Exodus 3. Finally, Israel responds with words of repentance. But they're responding to five chapters, if you will, of rebuke. God's word has come to God's people and has rebuked them for their sin, for their disobedience, for their perpetual rebellion and cosmic treason. Maybe 2 Timothy 3 sort of comes to mind, right? Where that passage you know where where Paul writes about God's word and, and tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God, God and it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Have you ever just sort of assumed that reproof and correction were kind of the same thing? Well, it turns out that the, the, the Greek word used for correction there actually has the word ortho in it, like your orthopedic surgeon. It's, it's about setting a bone right. A bone's broken, you're putting it back in the right place. Rebuke is, is actually pointing out sin and, and wrong and danger and falsehood and disobedience and so five chapters of rebuke and Israel finally responds to that rebuke they've been reproved if I can steal from Paul in 2 Timothy 3 and throw it back into this passage Israel seems to be repenting because God's word has rebuked them Repentance is a, a response to God's rebuke. Second, repentance is turning from sin and guilt. Notice their description in verses 7 to 11. They are like their father, Adam. You remember Adam. Adam and Eve in the garden. Set there in paradise. Set there with no sin. Set there perfect uh, in, in holiness and righteousness set there with 
really provision beyond imagination. You can eat anything you want to eat with the exception of the fruit from just that one tree. And what I want you to do, Adam, is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, govern it, be my vice regents in my creation. You remember Adam's response to that. Well, hold on a second. Did you say, not in so many words, mind you, right? Did you say vice regent? I don't want to be the vice regent. I want to be the regent. What if, God, we make a deal, I'm going to go eat that fruit because then I'll be like you and then maybe you can be my vice regent. How about that? That's the essence of, of sin, of rebellion in the garden. Adam wanted to be in charge. Adam wanted to be his own God. He wanted to, to, to worship his, to follow his own design, his own path. And for that, he would die. Gilead, Shechem are cities. And apparently very bloody cities. Right? I mean, it's so bloody in Gilead that you have to take your shoes off when you get home lest you track not mud or dirt or grass, but blood into your house. It's tracked with blood. In Shechem, there's villainy. Even the priests are participating. They're hiding and, and robbing, raping, murdering people on the road between uh, Bethel and um, the, where the other town where there was some area. It's, it's turned... Bloody villainy. And we don't have to wonder what God thought because he tells us in verse 10 that, that he's seen a horrible thing. And then he describes Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Israel's on the verge of, of being destroyed and scattered to the four winds, if you will. Judah, verse 11, Judah's, Judah's time is coming. Right. Verse 11, you kind of almost get this Judah. Just you wait, because in about a hundred years, you're next. Right. Babylon's going to come and grab you and carry you off into exile. And so repentance is recognizing that guilt. It's recognizing and notice, notice that verses seven through ten sort of capture both inherited guilt Right. My um, uh, my uh, original sin with which I am born because I've inherited that guilt from Adam. And then what we might call actual transgressions in both Gilead and Shechem. Repentance is hating and forsaking that. Repentance is recognizing the guilt of my sin, both my with which I am born, my inherited sin, and the sins that I actually commit. And it's hating and forsaking those. It's turning our back on that. Repentance is responding to God's rebuke. 
Repentance is turning from sin and guilt. Here's the thing. If you're going to turn from something, you have to actually turn to something. Otherwise, you just keep spinning. Right? You can sort of steal from the Avett brothers when you run. Make sure you run to something and not always from. Well, if you, if you turn away from something, I'm by default turning to something else. And that's the picture back in verses 1 through 3. Repentance, responding to God's rebuke, turning from sin and guilt. And it's 3, returning to God. Notice the language of verse 1. Let's go back. Let's return to God. Let's return to Yahweh. Anytime the Old Testament writers, especially the prophets, use that word return in relation to Israel and God like that, it's, it's always got this notion of repentance. It's always, it always carries this idea of leaving something behind, leaving the old man, leaving the old ways, leaving the, the guilty, sinful, rebellious self behind and turning in faith to God. And that's the picture here in verses 1 through 3. They've been pursuing other gods. They've given themselves promiscuously to carry the language of Hosea, the imagery of the rest of Hosea to idols. They've given themselves freely and loosely to Baal. And so this language of returning indicates we're leave, let's, let's leave that behind. Let's Turn our backs on that. Let's hate and forsake that. And instead, let's go back to Yahweh. That language recognizes that they've been going somewhere. They've been going one way. And that that way is the wrong way. And therefore, I need to turn around and go back the right way. We sing, in fact, we're pulling a, while you were asleep, that's not actually true. Before you were, walked in the door, Dixie and Erica and I pulled a fast one on you. Translation, I pulled a fast one on Dixie this morning. But we sing prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Repentance says, hold on, let me no longer leave. Let me return. So the other night, with all the rain, was that Thursday night? I understand, I saw on the news, they closed part of I-65 uh, down near Coleman at exit 308, right? Because it was flooded. You couldn't get through, right? So you're watching the news, and what do they tell you? Turn around, don't drown. <clears throat> what if we use that language for sin? I mean, the threat's actually worse, right? It's actually a greater danger to run headlong into sin. What if instead we kind of came face to face with temptation and said, turn around, don't die. Turn around, don't drown. That's, that's kind of the, the concept, the language that's being used here. Because every sin is rebellion. Every sin is cosmic treason. Every sin says, I don't want to submit to God's will. 
I don't want to submit to God's commands. I don't really like what he's said. I, it's, it's so restricted. Right? This Christianity stuff, it's just so restricted. I don't really like that. I want to do, you know, what I want to do. And so I'm going to tell God how it is, not the other way around. That, that's the essence of sin. Right? Whatever the sin may be, it is us deciding. I don't, I want to be in charge. I want to, I want to decide. It's not up to God to make that call. So repentance is responding to God's rebuke. Uh, It's turning from sin and guilt. It's returning to God. And finally, repentance should be wholehearted. Did you you notice verses 4 through 7? Or 4 through 6 especially? Did you you notice how the words sound? Okay, I guess I realize technically we could read them in whatever tone we wanted to read them. But... Sometimes we come to places in Scripture where the words communicate a tone and you can't help but read it like that. It almost sounds exasperated. That's what we mean when we say, what am I going to do with you? Right? What am I going to do with you? That's the language used here and the problem is their words don't seem to mean anything you watch eric burke on uh waff in the mornings you watch the the morning news right you gotta i gotta see what the weather's gonna be like gotta see what the traffic's gonna be like i gotta know what's going on right and you wake up and you look outside and you're there and it's kind of foggy out there and eric burke tells you no problem by 9 9 30 that'll be all gone because the sun will come up and the light and the heat from the sun will burn all of that off and the dew the wet that Bingley tracks into the house, our golden retriever, tracks into the house when he goes out first thing in the morning. You won't have to deal with that this afternoon because all that will be gone. The sun is going to dry all that up. Did you, that's the comparison he uses. Your love, your commitment to me, your love is like a, a morning cloud. Not a cloud, But the clouds, the kinds of clouds, the kinds of foggy things we deal with when the sun comes up and by, you know, by 9, 9.30, it's all gone. I mean, we're glad for that when it's that foggy. That's not what our love for God should be like. There's this sense in which he's going, I hear the words, but your words are empty. Your words are only words And you need more than words. It's as though Israel's saying, I want to return to the Lord. But her heart isn't in it. She's she's using the right language, but it's only coming from mind to mouth and not coming from heart to mouth. Their, Their dedication, their commitment to God didn't even make it to lunch. I mean, by the time they sat down to eat lunch, it was all gone. It was all lost. And there's more evidence. Verse 6. 
I desire steadfast love or mercy. Um, there's that, you get to spit, chesed word, loving kindness, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And, and you know, David says almost exactly the same thing in Psalm 51. It's the, it's the picture of someone who merely goes through the motions of worship. It's the picture of someone who, who shows up and does the things in worship that the bulletin tells us to do. But mentally, emotionally, completely absent from God. It's, it's as though, okay, Israel was offering sacrifices. The people were offering sacrifices, but it was robotic. It was not, with no, it, was, it lacked devotion and love. Have you ever... You know, so there's always debates, conversations about what worship should look like today and, and the kinds of songs we should sing and um, what we should do in the context of worship and, and how we can elicit responses, you know, emotional responses from people. By the way, if ye who think of sin but lightly nor suppose evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate, doesn't elicit an emotional response, we're not paying attention. But that's a side. There are plenty of objections, even to the way we do things, just because it's you know, you're kind of going through this liturgy, and our liturgy doesn't change very much. And you're kind of like, where's the emotion? Where's the where's the feeling? Where's the spirit? I get it. I understand the question. But think about this for a second. Where's the emotion in putting a hand? On a lamb. While the priest. Slid its throat. Dipped a branch. In the blood. Sprinkled it on you. Sprinkled it on the altar. Like there's nothing. about Like we. We're repulsed by the sound of that. And the language here is. You're merely doing that. Without actually loving me. You're, you're slaughtering the goat. But there's no... It's, it lacks love for me. It lacks... The reality is if... If you put your hand on that lamb and recognize that's me. It's what my sin deserves. It's not what I got. Why? Because actually that lamb isn't me. That lamb is the Messiah. Whose blood was shed for us. There's your emotion. There's, there's the love. There's the response that comes not just through our actions, but from our heart. Hosea says, look, you, you're worshiping me. You're going through the motions. You're burning offerings. You're offering sacrifices but you're not even aware of my existence. In other words, repentance requires more than words. It requires actual love and devotion and commitment to God. 
for that matter, just as sort of modern side example illustration, have you ever thought about the fact that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, um, I typically will warn people, if you're not trusting in Christ, do not take these elements. Have you ever thought about why? I mean, it's why I do my, if you're not a Christian, don't take them. You don't want them. Because taking these elements says I'm guilty and I need a redeemer. And if you're not trusting in Christ for your for your salvation, you should let them go because you're not trusting in him. It's merely going through the actions as if taking communion somehow magically did something to you. The reality is we take in faith, we take looking to Christ as our savior. And so Hosea reminds us uh, repentance is responding to God's rebuke, turning from sin and guilt, returning to God and should be wholehearted. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage. The first is this repent because God's gracious. It it sounds like Israel's repentance is half hearted. But it also sounds like that was disappointing to God, if I can use that kind of language. He desires that relationship. He he sacrificed his son to make you right with him, to welcome you into his presence, to invite you into this relationship with him. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's righteous. Yes, he punishes sin. But notice verse six again. He desires steadfast love. He desires mercy. He desires knowledge of him. Do you hear that? God's not command, just commanding you to repent. He's actually inviting you to. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he's merciful. Because he loves you. He wants you to hate and forsake your sin and to return to him. Second application. um, Steals from verse three. Uh, Let us press on to know the Lord. We are prone to wander. Um, Our repentance demands more than words and it invites us to pursue him and press on to know him. Our love for God, our relationship to God requires action. It requires constant, perpetual commitment. Not let us know, but also let us press on to know. But notice also that that that's that that's an exhortation that's that's public, that's plural. Not let me press on, but let us press on. In other words, what we want for our church fellowship is not to be the kind of people who, when one stumbles and falls, we back up, throw our hands up, point, laugh, mock, make fun of, maybe even kick, splatter a little dirt on them while they're down. 
Now, what we want for our church fellowship is that we be the kind of people who, when one stumbles and falls, we run over, we pick up, we point them to the cross and say, there's your salvation. There's your forgiveness. Let's go together. Let us press on to know the Lord. There's an implication there that pressing on to know the Lord actually requires in us. It actually requires other people. And third, why is steadfast love better than sacrifice? Because you can't offer a sacrifice better than the sacrifice already given. Because there's nothing you can add to Jesus. There is no sacrifice you can offer that somehow makes the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, better. God has sacrificed his son. He sent his own son to suffer and bleed and die for our guilt, to draw us to himself, to satisfy his wrath. And it's only in Christ that we can be saved. It's only in Christ that we can repent. It's only in Christ that we can hate and forsake our sin. It's only in Christ that we can press on to know the Lord. May we be a people who point each other, who point one another to the cross. May we be the kind of people who point to Jesus and say, there's our sacrifice. Let's return to God together. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you have called us to repentance. You have commanded us to repent, to, to turn from, to hate and forsake our sin but also that you've invited us to repent. Not some merely angry, disappointed boss, but the loving husband of your people, inviting us to repent, inviting us to be restored, inviting us to return to you, Father, may that be true of us as individuals. May that be true of us as a church fellowship. And we pray that that repentance would bring revival in this community. To the honor and glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.